Welcome to this edition of the Business Day Spotlight podcast. I'm Alex Parker, editor of Business Day. A year after the attempted murder of then Eskom CEO Andre de Reuter, I asked him for an interview. The hour or so that follows is that conversation. We covered a lot of ground, including his view on the developments in the energy sector since his departure and the investigation into his attempted murder. We also discussed the state of Eskom and its diminishing opportunity for reform and who and what is behind resistance to it. We also spoke about that famous television interview, the infamous Five Eyes intelligence reports, how they were treated by journalists. And I asked him if he had any regrets or with the benefit of a year's hindsight, whether he wishes he had done anything slightly differently. Someone tried to kill you and there's no real interest in um there's apparently no real interest in sort of pursuing it. Well, I guess it, it's 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 part of the pattern of behaviour that we've seen, right? Um, when um, my team and I at ESCO reported criminal acts to um, the police at Tutuka uh, at Camden, uh, suspects were either not arrested, so there was no interest from the police. If they were arrested, uh, they were they were released very quickly on derisory bail, or um, they were released without any charges by uh, prosecutors. And that seems to be the story. But I think as it subsequently turned out, um, and, and, and it's quite clear, is that the the allegations that I made, in fact, uh, did have a huge amount of substance. Uh, the SARS raid, uh, where they went after people, ironically similar to, to El Capone, for 500 million rand, uh, which is a pittance compared to what I suspect is being stolen on a monthly basis. Uh, but at least there was some action. Uh, but the fact that it had to be done under the auspices of SARS and not by uh, the criminal justice system, tells you something about the how um, misaligned the interests are when it comes to clearing out corruption in ESCOM. Yeah, and I think that that's, um, that's the really interesting point that I sort of wanted to talk to you about because I think the... Um, a lot has changed since you left. I mean, I, I was talking to our reporter, Dineen Erasmus, about this, and, and, and a lot has changed since you left. I mean, we've had NECOM has been formed, um, so that's the presidency getting more directly involved. Um, there's been a massive bailout announced at the um, in the budget, $254 billion, coming with, as you know, um, quite strict uh, conditions. Um, and, and, and not, not least... Um, a new minister, an electricity minister, and um, and a new chairman, and I and, and I wondered if you felt that that those were sort of um, meaningful changes. And we can talk about the chairman perhaps a little bit later. But I mean, um, do do you think that appointing an electricity minister and um, and the conditionality attached to the to the to the bailout announced by the treasury? Do you, do you see that stuff as positive? Does it give you some hope? The appointment of the electricity minister, I think, was a somewhat puzzling move uh, because, 
at my time at ESCOM, we were already stretched quite thin uh, in terms of making presentations, attending meetings. Um, at that time, NICOM had already been called into existence. And we were, you know, meeting on Sunday, Sunday evenings um, at all hours to to meet the, the, the needs of various members of cabinet to remain informed. And I think the the introduction of an additional layer without simplifying reporting lines, uh, that probably was not helpful. And I think in the, in the recent statement that Minister Ramakopa made to Parliament, we effectively bemoaned his fate that he didn't have the power to interact with the entity that he was supposed to supervise. Uh, I think underlines that, that fact that it, it was a fairly strange appointment um, without clarifying the, the other lines. Uh, we, we, we know the construct of the shareholder accountability sitting with public enterprises and the policy accountability sitting with mineral resources and energy. So I don't think the mandate of Minister Ramakopa has been clarified properly um, at any time. And I don't think he seems to be very sure himself of what he's supposed to be doing. But that's that's just my, my observation from the outside. Yeah. When I mean, it comes to the so, yeah, sorry No, sorry Andre, carry on. Uh, I was I was just about to go to the bailout. So as far as the bailout is concerned, I think you know in all my interactions with uh, Dr. Duncan Peterson, these these always struck me as a hugely sensible um, individual who, who thinks very carefully about what he does and who is very prudent in handling public finances. So. You know, the first thing is I think he's a he's a very safe pair of hands and to be supported. Secondly, I think he and Minister Burangwana have done the right thing in imposing conditionalities. Uh, you 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 can't continue to indefinitely hose out money at ESCOM without getting some sort of a, a quid pro quo attached to it. South Africa's already in trouble with the ratings agencies and um, throwing uh, more and more money at the problem without trying to fix it and decisively fix it, I think uh, clearly is not the prudent way forward. So I think that that uh, the conditions are right. I think the that the bailout is um, is necessary. I would have added one more condition, and that is that. Um, ESCOM should have secured cost-reflective tariffs from NOSA. Because if we do not get, uh, if ESCOM doesn't get cost-reflective tariffs, then in three, four years' time, uh, the entity will be back at Treasury's door with a begging bowl asking for more because it, its costs will be higher than its revenues. And, uh, you know, you don't need to be a business wizard to, to understand that that is no solution for a sustainable business. So it'll be interesting to see how that particular issue gets addressed. 
because fundamentally, if you stand back and you look at just the simple mathematics of money in versus money out, uh, particularly now that Minister Gurungwana has um, introduced the notion of charging ESCOM interest on those loans uh, or on the uh, equity injection, um, I think life is going to be um, interesting and it's going to remain interesting unless there is a structural solution that is found uh, to this to this issue. Do you, do you think that cost-reflective tariffs would increase the pressure on ESKIM and the people in charge of policy at the MRE to choose cheaper technologies and to pursue cheaper technologies? Um, do you think that the sort of protection of the customer from the actual price of electricity, especially the heavy users, is part of the policy problem? You know, if you, if you look back at the energy white paper of 1998, um, that already makes reference to the fact that uh, South Africa's competitive advantage is a low electricity cost, and that advantage needs to be protected at all costs. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's pretty much what the white paper says. And I think that that um, has been the case and that um, has been implemented in various tariff decisions uh, subsequently, which of course leads to the shortfall. Now, some of the energy intensive users are really finding that not only do they um, suffer from a lack of uh, available electricity, but they also suffer from a lack of <clears throat> available decarbonized electricity. Uh, the deal that South 32 struck with ESCOM around uh, electricity from Cuba to safeguard the carbon footprint of uh, the hillside smelter, uh, that's that's something that I discussed with South 32 while I was still at ESCOM. Uh, I think that that just shows that um, the the impetus for decarbonization is now irreversible, particularly with the introduction by the European Union uh, and the activation now of the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that that is going to happen, um, and we, I think, um, should embrace this. Uh, we should not resist it. We should move to uh, cleaner, greener technologies uh, as quickly as possible, not only for environmental reasons, not only for health reasons, but particularly to protect the competitiveness of our exporters because they they are going to be put in a very difficult position where they will be faced with, with duties effectively. And you can argue about the merits or not of those duties, but the fact is that it's going to happen. The U.S., by the way, in a, in a rare example of bipartisanship, is supporting similar measures. Uh, so that's something on which both Republicans and Democrats, in fact, are aligned on. I think it's one of the one of the few things that they are aligned on. So the, the trading world is going to change when it comes to the attributed carbon content of manufactured, mined goods, even agricultural products, and um, Therefore, I think, you know, you've, you've got to accept this. Um, the benefit, of course, coming back to the tariff discussion is that this technology is, is, is cheaper. 
um, than the alternative. If you look at the cost of extending the life of um, Andrina, if memory serves to, to get another uh, five years of life out of Andrina, that's without the cost of labor, without the cost of coal. So essentially just the capital, that was about 40 billion rand for only five more years of uh, 2,000 megawatts of electricity. Uh, now that's an extraordinary number. It's, it's, uh, when you, when you look at the fact that the entire transmission development plan, uh, is intended to cost about 135 billion, which will build infrastructure that will last 50, 60 years. Embracing the transition will give us eventually, um, an abatement in the increase of electricity costs. It will not entirely slow it down but it will definitely escalate at a slower rate than if we stick to the current generation fleet, which now seems to be uh, the intent with life extensions being booted again. Yeah. I mean, I uh, they haven't, the Treasury hasn't released it yet, but as you know, part of the conditionality was that um, for the for the bailout was a independent report, which was put together by the VGBE consortium of, uh, I think, mainly in French and German engineering companies. Um, they haven't released the report, but uh, in today's paper, actually, I wrote a piece um, having spoken to some of the authors, and um, they appear to, um, they, there, there certainly is a, I, I picked up from a couple of the people that I spoke to, that life extensions were mentioned on the coal uh -huh. plants and that they were, I think that, I think that that's been taken out of the final report as being out of scope in terms of the, um, the actual tender document. But, um, I think it seems like you've also picked that up in the, in the atmosphere that there's a sort of talk about that. Yeah. I mean, um, Minister Ramakopa, in fact, mentioned it, uh, the other day, Bob, he said, um, or it was one of his, his, his Sunday briefings. But he said, you know, uh, labor is getting restive. They are concerned about their future. And ever since he spoke to uh, labor, I think it was at Camden and Andrina, and said that the plants would no longer shut down in 2025, uh, things have quieted down and people are very much more comfortable and are now, again, uh, willing to work. Um, so, yeah, I think that's firmly on the table as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it and it seems that the decision has in fact been taken. I oh, really, yeah. You see, the the what's interesting is is that today the uh, there was a post cabinet briefing today, and the um, uh, the Jet IP plan has been approved by the cabinet. They haven't released the actual plan yet, but I believe a couple of countries have joined: Denmark, um, someone else, I forget who. Um, I. Um, and they've raised the initial sum of money to $9.3 billion, I think it is now. Um, you were at COP26. You you negotiated that deal, if I'm not mistaken, or certainly part of the team that did. I think COP28 is going to be a different kettle of fish, isn't it? And I'm wondering how you, I mean, I'm I'm foreseeing huge pushback from certain countries on, on border adjustment mechanisms, carb, carbon taxes on the borders, um, and that I suspect South Africa could be on the side of that, of trying to get out of those? Um, the, the, 
the original jet fee, um, I think, was a was was a very good deal for South Africa. I think we we, we got the eight point five billion um, in commitments nailed down. The countries that joined subsequently, I think, were the Netherlands, uh, Spain, as well as Denmark. So um, the total amount is sitting now, if I'm correct, at about twelve point five billion. US dollars. So it's a big pot of money. And uh, people are obviously uh, excited about it. I think there are concerns that I've picked up um, from the European countries around governance. They, they, they're asking you know, what measures should be put in place in order to ensure that uh, this money is not purloined, uh, given all of the sad history around ESCOM and that current practices that uh, are still prevailing. Uh, but there are ways around it. So I think the principle, uh, South Africa needs to embrace this, uh, jet, uh, P and it, it's, 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 it's good that the investment plan is now finally being approved. Uh, when I was still there, we were submitting draft after draft of the plan. So, um, I think, you know, uh, right, um, that we are now getting there at last. But I think at COP28, um, you're right, the narrative is going to be different. But I also think that uh, the world has moved on very fundamentally in terms of the resurgence of industrial policy in the, in the guise of climate policy. Because if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is to be emulated by the European Union, if you look at carbon border adjustment mechanisms, and as I've said, um, the United States is considering something very similar, then a significant proportion of the global economy, uh, let's call it half of the global economy, will, on the one hand, give significant subsidies to transitioning their own economies by pursuing manufacturing technologies, by uh, decarbonizing um, through various interventions in the economy, uh, tax incentives, um, subsidies for battery manufacture, electric cars, and so forth. And if you think about what the impact of that will be on the developing world, I think there is a good case to be made for serious concern about that. Uh, China, for one, has indicated that it regards the, the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, as a contravention of uh, the World Trade Organization rules, and they've indicated that they intend to, to challenge that. I'm not sure if that's going to be successful, because in order to preserve European Union's manufacturing base, they, they've got to have a CBAM. Uh, you can't have uh, any sort of green industry being subsidized by your taxpayers, but um, there are other jurisdictions where you can go and pursue manufacturing opportunities without onerous carbon taxes. Um, so I think a CBAM, from the European perspective, is a, is a critical part of their transition. And similarly for the U.S. Uh, to prevent what is what is technically called carbon leakage, uh, which is where manufacturers 
move their operations to um, more lenient jurisdictions in order to avoid decarbonization initiatives and then export their products back to the to their country of origin. Uh, so there will be a lot of debate around that. It is a very difficult one. I do think the developing world has a significant um, concern that it needs to address because if all the electric cars, all the solar panels, all the wind turbines, all the batteries are manufactured in uh, countries where they receive huge subsidies, the message to developing countries is, you know, send us your raw materials and we'll beneficiate them and we'll send the manufactured products back to you. Now, the last time that uh, the global trading system operated in this way was in the heyday of colonialism. And I don't think anybody wants to return to that. So there is a lot of concern that all of these interventions, well-intended though they may be, may erode many of the benefits of globalization. Uh, globalization has created a huge number of jobs. It's, it's lifted many, many millions of people out of poverty. And this uh, putting up of trade barriers and subsidizing own internal manufacturing really, I think, comes at the expense of the gains of globalization. Now, we need to then think, well, how can this be avoided? Because I don't think there's much of a chance that the U.S., for example, will repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, although under Trump presidency, I guess anything would be possible. Uh, and I don't think the, the, the EU will be swayed from implementing CBAM. How do we ensure that the developing world still has a fair shot at developing their economies um, building energy generation capacity uh, to be able to uh, create wealth for their populations. And that's a very complex question uh, because you can't just imagine uh, a scenario where politicians in the global north stand up and tell their constituencies, well, guess what? We're going to transfer a trillion dollars a year to developing economies. That's that's never going to happen. So we need to find mechanisms to create those transfers um, in a way that is politically palatable, but also that does not create this, this us versus them divide. That's a hugely complex issue. Um, in my view, developing carbon markets so that they can operate more effectively on a global basis instead of on a strictly defined regional basis. This part of the solution uh, to give developing countries the opportunity to accelerate the decolonization efforts or to even leapfrog into green technologies rather than merely um, being isolated and um, subjected to, to uh at the end, fairly punitive interventions uh, by the global north. Yeah, and you could see that they would say, well, you know, that there's a there's carrot and there's stick here um, in terms of, you, you know, yes, there's CBAM, but there's also a JetP program. Um, I guess the question is, 
is our political are our political circumstances capable of delivering it? Do you think do you think we can do you think South Africa is able to to walk this road with our current political makeup? That's a that's a very difficult question because my my sense is that there, there is not uh, universal support for the jet IP. The mere fact that it's taken so long to approve the uh, jet investment plan suggests that it's not a slam dunk. It's not it's not an obvious uh, thing for the country to pursue. Uh, I think there are people who clearly see the imperative for us to transform our economy, uh, create net more jobs by going through the green transition versus the uh, coal fundamentalists uh, and the resource nationalists who say, well, it's our God-given right to burn every last lump of coal and how do you intervene in our efforts to grow our economy on the back of our fossil endowments. And that tension, I think, comes through uh, quite often in our various political pronouncements. If you look at the momentum that South Africa had behind it at COP26 when, when the first JP was announced, it was, it was really quite a, a revolutionary innovation. Uh, not nearly enough to address all of our financial requirements, but still, it was really a breakthrough transaction that was then quickly copied by Indonesia, by Vietnam. Uh, Senegal is also pursuing a similar type of transaction. And Indonesia in particular uh, has now overtaken South Africa. It's, it's, it's accelerated and it's overtaken us because they, they've got their ducks in a row and they know what they want and they prepare to, to implement policy quite quickly to ensure that um, the EJP, which by the way, um, is, uh, consists of blended finance of 20 billion. So they got a much bigger uh, headline number than, than ours, double, more than double. So yeah, I think as long as there's not clear political direction that this is where we want to go, this is what we want to do, and a clear direction that um, for the workers in the coal value chain, we are able to create uh, alternative outcomes that are not catastrophic, because uh, those concerns are legitimate. We do need to address them, and I think we do need to have empathy for people who are invested in the, in the coal value chain. Just ignoring it, saying, uh, well, tough luck for you. This is Schumpeterian creative destruction. So, uh, you know, in the Darwinian world of, of uh, capitalism that is red and tooth and claw, um, this is your lot. Terribly sorry. That's not going to be enough. So we've got to play this balancing act, uh, but we've got to take the decision to implement. And, and that decision to implement, I think, is is being uh, extremely slow. Uh, it's it's really um, moving at a snail's pace from from what I can see. Yeah, 
I mean, I think that's how it feels from the outside as well. And I think, I think it feels like some of the problems are that, that, that these, these technical discussions are not had always in good faith. Um, um, and the fact of the matter is that there's a whole, and, and this takes us back to crime and, and, and the five as reports and everything else. Um, is that, is that there is a whole shadow economy, um, feeding off Eskom's, um, and you've, you described it really brutally in your, your book, uh, Truth to Power. And I, and I, I, it occurs to me that if there's a, there's an entire shadow economy that you said conservatively was costing Eskom a billion rand a month. Um, uh, is it, and, and that, the, and that, that economy was directed from right to the top, at least to very high levels in government. And, and therefore, is it possible to proceed until that linkage is broken? It certainly appears that it is, um, if not explicitly condoned, then at least uh, tolerated. And we, we, we simply have to get to grips with the existence of this uh, shadow economy. Uh, you know, if you if you look at what Minister Gordon said in Parliament recently, where um, he said not enough of the ringleaders are in yellow overalls. Uh, now that certainly seems to me to be a suggestion that they they, they are um, senior people, whether they're senior in the cartels or in politics or in both. Uh, I don't know. Um, I've got some ideas, but let me not elaborate on that. Uh, but that they are out there and they uh, still continue to benefit from what's going on. And the, the amount of money that is available, um, in this shadow economy, in this, in this criminal enterprise, um, is so large that they can they can buy influence. They can buy um, immunity. They can they can buy. At the end of the day, they can they can buy the direction of policy because of the way in which um, the political economy of the coal belt is structured. And the advocates of the alternative, I think, have not been able to put together a sufficiently compelling narrative that uh, that can act as um, an alternative to the notion of, oh, well, you're all going to lose this opportunity for you to enrich yourself. And um, I think understanding that and, and having those discussions, instead of placating uh, the, the, the coal factions. I think no one's doing that. And that is, that is where we need some, some real courageous leadership to engage with that and make sure that, that we can start on this journey. Uh, the sad fact of the matter is, um, as far as ESCOM is concerned, of course, is that um, since the lifting of the cap on private generation, uh, private investors have in fact now seized on this. And uh, I was frankly quite astounded to hear that there are 66 gigawatts. Now that's 
um, what is it, about 25% more than ESCOM's total installed nameplate capacity. 66 gigawatts of renewable energy projects in the pipeline. That's, that's enormous. That is, that is a, a gobsmacking number. And in the absence of engaging with these, um, with these political issues, engaging with, um, some of these, these, these very complicated, admittedly, and, and challenging conundrums, uh, the private sector will do its own thing and it will effectively privatize um, the electricity industry. And that is what seems to be happening now. And ESCOM is going to be left behind in that process and be stuck maybe with plants on which it has spent 40 billion rand to extend its life for five more years, but with people who don't really want to either buy or pay for because uh, those are the two classes of customers that ESCOM will have going forward uh, for electricity that is produced. Yeah, I mean the um, sixty-six gigawatts. It, it it it's a huge number, and and it and it talks about a transition that's already happening, um, not in any particularly controlled way, and certainly not in a fair way. If you, it's, uh, the, the transition that we're seeing in terms of big businesses and wealthy homeowners getting off the grid or grid tied at least, that um, is a transition and it is a green transition, but it's a transition that leaves leaves small businesses and poor people behind. Absolutely. And it's a big concern because ultimately it's not going to be sustainable. Uh, you know, if you, if you extrapolate from current trends, <clears throat> then ESCOM will eventually be left with a customer base of people who, who cannot afford electricity uh, and therefore don't pay for it, uh, whether they be private citizens or municipalities uh, that don't pay, uh, or uh, customers who are indifferent to the carbon content, so people who don't export and are prepared to put up with irregular and interruptible supply of electricity. And Private capital is going to direct money to investment destinations where they encounter the least resistance and get the highest yield. So they are going to uh, not have the interests of uh, the coal value chain in mind, which eventually leads you to almost an entire province in Pumalanga having to face up to the fact that they could be um, in, a, in a very difficult situation in five to ten years' time when the pressure on, on carbon emissions grows to the point where people are compelled, people like Anglo-American who are committed to decarbonization, uh, as are many other entities because they, they tend to comply with a new world order of uh, carbon being an unacceptable component of your production process. Uh, without the, that policy that, that enables that transition to take place in a fair way to create deliberate safety nets by, you know, like what we did at Kumati, by ensuring that you attract investments to where the power station used to operate. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to, to create just outcomes. 
and there's a shrinking window for this. I mean, how long does how long does Eskom have really to to grasp these opportunities, these policy opportunities, and also obviously the financial um, opportunities that are kind of that are there at the moment? I think uh, Eskom should have grasped them already. Uh, I think we should have already decisively pivoted to that green future uh, as a as a country, as a utility, as an economy. Um, because we, we, we really run the risk of being left behind. Um, the argument of South African exceptionalism doesn't wash. People no longer believe in the Mandela magic, so they are starting to look at us as uh, just another country. And the goodwill that, that we used to have, I think, is, is either gone or is evaporating quite quickly. So we, we really should have acted on this and sent out those clear signals uh, a long time ago. But if you look at the the enormous delays around a new integrated resource plan uh, and the uh, uh, risks that we have faced with increasing the role of coal rather than diminishing it, uh, I'm not holding my breath that we'll get that direction anytime soon. Right, yeah. But, I mean, the, the five as reports, I mean, and and the the, I mean, it was an interesting time for me personally because I came to Business Day, and then pretty much one of the first big stories that came across my desk was was that, and um, and you and I had that breakfast. I don't know if you remember in Riverville, and um, it 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 was a sort of completely frantic period. The the the, the reports were out and they were explosive, um, and you um, you did an interview with with ETV. Um, that was explosive, um, and and then very suddenly you were under. I mean, it must have been brutal to be in the middle of that. Um, to be under, you were under attack to say the least, um, and you came under vicious criticism um, for your your handling of Escom, the way you ran the plants, um, your conduct. Um, they called you racist because you said some things about how the ANC handles itself. Is there anything you look back at and think, I wish I'd done that slightly differently, um, or I hadn't said that, or um, uh, should I have should I have done that ETV interview the way that I did it? Um, do, do you have any sort of, I mean, you know, a year has passed. Do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had I've had lots of thoughts about this, um, <laughs> and uh, I've replayed uh, various parts of that movie with 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 different cuts. Um, <laughs> So yeah, absolutely. I've I've thought about it uh, long and hard, and uh, you know, one part of me says, well, you know, maybe I should just have kept quiet, um, gone to all my uh, farewell parties, um, you know, and just moved off into the sunset. Maybe got a couple of of uh, nice non-executive director slots somewhere, and that's it. Um, but the the other part of me um, says that if if I hadn't done what I did, and we can argue about the way in which I did it, but if I if I hadn't exposed some of these uh, very significant um, issues that that had been bedeviling ESCOM, um, then the likelihood of anything constructive being done about it uh, was quite low because I think only when I said, but hang on, 
we've got a very serious problem here. Did we see action being taken? We saw uh, the reshuffling of senior police officials in Mpumalanga. Um, we saw, um, thanks in no small part to the intelligence gathered by the Finance Report, that the deployment of soldiers to his power stations. We saw a number of um, articles being uh, written, uh, essentially confirming. Uh, we saw more whistleblowers coming forward. We saw people confirming um, through various investigations, um, like SARS, for example, uh, effectively what I'd said. But we also, I think, saw a narrative emerge that started to challenge the, the ANC's thinking. Um, you know, previously, very few people actually were prepared to or bothered to challenge the, 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 the ANC on their ideology. And hopefully one of the issues that I, that I catalyzed the discussion on was what is the ideological direction that we should be taking as a country? Uh, are we going to be a, um, a socialist country or um, a more liberal free market economy with appropriate social safety nets? And more and more I see uh, the word ideology coming to the fore as one of the major stumbling blocks um, to the growth of South Africa and the solution of our many ails. Uh, if you if you look at the interview that Neil Frohnemann did the other day, he was very blunt about it. He said, you know, Marxist ideology is a is a is a major issue for us, um, holding us back. And if if I had not been as overt in my criticism, I'm not sure that that would have come out. Um, of course, you know, looking back hindsight, 2020, um, the timing wasn't great. Um, I, I should have prevailed on uh, the TV station to, to broadcast after I'd already left. That, that would have been better. Um, but the central thrust of the arguments that I made and uh, um, allegations that I think have been by and large corroborated um, through a number of external data points, various arrests that have been made, I think they, they, they bear out what I said then, and I also think that if I hadn't said them, I'm not sure that much would have happened, to be honest. I think, you know, it would have been yet again quietly swept under the rug, and um, everybody knows about it, but nobody's prepared to speak out. So, yeah, I guess that's the, that's the conclusion that I've arrived at, is that if I, if I hadn't spoken out, uh, I'm not sure that action would have been taken. I I, I did not get that sense um, that the police, for example, were prepared to investigate with vigour. Uh, on the contrary, uh, you know, the, the Yup Burger investigation was um, incredibly poorly resourced. We had far too few people to assist them um, and he, he was not able to, to act on the intelligence. He was not able to convert the intelligence into actionable dockets because he didn't have resources. Why, why weren't those resources given to him?
Well, that we don't know, but uh, we can only make um, educated guesses. Um, so the, the the blowback, I mean, the, the Five Eyes reports, um, they must have been personally terrible. I mean, it must have been really awful to be in the middle of that storm. Yeah, the the, the pressure was was quite intense, um, but you know, fundamentally, uh, again, I I think I had enough information and enough um, corroborative evidence to to suggest that yes, there was something that was seriously wrong. That is common. It wasn't only old plants poorly maintained. Uh, it had everything to do with the existence of organized crime cartels that operated with a very large degree of impunity inside ESCOM. And, you know, yes, the blowback caused a lot of pressure on me and it, and it, and it was a tough time to handle. But you should also try going on TV and explain to South Africa that we again have stage six load shedding uh, for reasons that, you know, you as the chief executive have to take account for, but you're not getting the support from various state agencies to address. That That's a different kind of question. And either way, I guess, um, I, was, I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. I suppose so, yeah, because your, your critics firmly blame you for, for stage six load shedding. And, um, you know, they, they, they say that you were incompetent and you didn't know how to run plants, um, that it was all your fault. Yeah, I, I disregard that completely. I, I think that is just a, just a handy fiction that they invent. Uh, if you, if you read my book and you look at the amount of, time and attention that I personally paid to try and fix what I'd found, uh, I think that accusation is baseless. Um, I try to introduce uh, operations excellence. I mean, I walked into maintenance stores and opened up tool cupboards and housekeeping, coal quality. Um, coal quality didn't receive any sort of attention. And when when I started looking at coal quality, then of course the whole coal theft thing came to the fore. So, no, I think that, that, that to blame me for bringing ESCOM to its knees in a short three years when various decisions, which I painstakingly outlined, uh, taken since 1998, are to blame for this. Uh, no, I think that's something that I don't give any to. Do you think that the, um, I'm going to do a couple of sort of quickish fire things. Do you think that the EF, the fleet EAF can get to 65% again? I doubt it. I doubt it. It's, it's, it's an old plant and I, I can't see, you know, that, that your, that your vintage Jaguar will, will ever win Lamar again. Uh, <laughs> it, it deserves to be nicely looked after and stuck in a museum. Right. Okay. <laughs> and um, you had a good relationship with Prof. Mahopa, from what I could tell from your book. Um, you had a, a, a good functional relationship. Uh, things changed when Mpumakwana arrived at Eskom. Yes. Uh, Prof. and I got along really well. Uh, I think there was a lot of mutual respect. 
he understood the role of a non-executive chairman. Um, I understood my role as chief executive, and we, we, we both played that role, I think, to the best of our ability. Mr. Makwana had a, had a different approach. I think he, he fancied himself more of an executive chair. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a significant change uh, from, from where I'd been. Uh, they were, there were also some, some issues related to, you know, just the way of doing things. Prof would always sign, uh, obviously after applying his mind, uh, whatever you put in front of him within a week. So that created a nice rhythm, created a, a very effective administration. But uh, Mr. McQuana was not so efficient and wanted to syndicate his risk by referring letters to two board subcommittees, for example, uh, which which is not really a way that assists in, in running a very large industrial enterprise. It's just not efficient. So no, we we, uh, we didn't quite see eye to eye on on how to do things. Adam Tatonyati, he's got a good reputation. Yeah, I think he he's a he's a obviously a highly intelligent individual. Uh, I think he he got into a bit of uh, trouble very early on after being appointed as a director at ESCOM uh, for suggesting that that maybe. Uh, BE and employment equity weren't uh, quite as effective as they were held out to be. But in spite of that, he's now being elevated to the position of chairman. Um, I rate him. Um, I think he's a person that that um, is susceptible to reason. Uh, but whether he has the political backing to really steer the ESCOM ship as a non-executive chairman should, uh, I don't know. I guess the future of the of of all the SOEs is up in in doubt at the moment. I mean, the the idea of a holding company. Um, I mean, in my my opinion, which is not really what anyone's particularly interested in, but it seems to be not really a solution. It's sort of a replication of DPE. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I don't know if it's going to work. Um, the the, the the other question I wanted to ask you was um, on on Guedemantache. His his background is obviously in the in the uh, in in the unions. That's where he comes from. He says some very strange things sometimes. He's 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 said some terrible things about you. He's called you a a traitor, um, mm. and uh, he he accuses people in. Um, Civil society of, of of being in the pay of the CIA. Um, it seems like he's going to be hard to get around in terms of policy and the and the and the um, the IRP specifically. Yeah, really, he is a huge obstacle to change. Um, you know, I think the logic of of the economics, the logic of the environment, the logic of our trade position, the logic of energy security, the logic of um, bringing on the maximum capacity at the lowest cost in the shortest period of time, uh, that is something that he disregards. Um, and I think that that will remain an obstacle for as long as he's in charge of um, 
two very important portfolios, um, both minerals as well as as energy. And uh, I think that that's going to be that's going to remain a challenge for South Africa. Um, he's a he's a very powerful politician, that's for sure. Right. Um, how many copies of your book have you sold? Uh, yeah, it's 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 sold quite well, about uh, sixty seven thousand in print and another five thousand in digital. Oh, that is uh, a lot. So yeah, it sold it, it it sold well. I was I was quite pleasantly surprised. No, that that's a very big number for a South African book, I must say. Um, I suppose the, the the way to wrap up would be to talk about how's how how are things at Yale? Um, what what are you teaching? Uh, is it nice to be away from South Africa for a bit? I'm sure uh, to go and do something completely different, um, much less pressure, maybe more pressure. I don't know. You tell me. No, it's 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 significantly less pressure, definitely. Um, uh, but it is great to be in an environment where, you know, there are there are a number of really smart people, uh, both faculty and students, engaged in all sorts of interesting things um, that, you know, I I get to learn of. So it's a huge learning experience for me. the The environment is is a is a bit of a bubble, obviously. You know, Yale is not the United States. Connecticut is not the United States. Uh, but it does give me the opportunity to to learn a lot about uh, some very pressing issues. I, I was recently invited to go and do a guest lecture at Princeton, um, where I spent the day also talking to some of their faculty. And again, you come away with uh, being hugely impressed with the the depth of engagement with some very serious issues in a very methodical way. Um, and um, so all in all, intellectually, hugely stimulating and um, a very good experience to, to keep my brain very active. Right. And... Um... And I guess nice for the family as well to get away from all the noise. Yeah, um, it's 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 nice being able to go into a restaurant, not to be recognised, uh, not to have bodyguards around, and uh, you know be able to get on a bus to ride into campus. Um, just be a be a normal human being for a change. It's good. Yeah. Okay. And 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 I'll and I'll I'll finish with one more one one last question. Um, uh, a question about journalism. I and mean, obviously, you must have read everything under the sun that was written about you and written about uh, Eskom, um, even probably when you were an executive at NAMPAC and and, and before. Um, how do you think the press corps did? How would you rate us or rate them uh, in terms of reporting on? Uh, your departure from Eskom, the, the Five Eyes reports, and uh, the, uh, the the criminality, especially that you experienced at Eskom, because there was some there was some good reporting, I suspect, but maybe some not so good. Yeah, I think of course the the, the press corps is not a monolithic beast. Uh, it, it it also has various factions. Uh, you know, from my early days at Eskom, where. Uh, a child would tragically be electrocuted by an uh, illegal connection, uh, and the Pretoria News, part of the independent media stable, would run that on their front page with a picture of me uh, smiling. 
uh, you know, clearly the suggestion being that I was this callous white individual who didn't give a damn about black children. And, and that set the tone for engagements from, from that particular uh, part of the press corps, uh, if you want to consider them part of the press corps. Um, I think the reporting uh, overall has been um, corroborative. Um, it has been supportive of what I found. Um, I think the one exception, of course, was the was the Jacques Poe article on News Twenty Four. That that still strikes me as as, as quite a, um, a strange report. I think it did a lot of damage to the court of law enforcement in South Africa uh, because after that report, um, the Fivers investigation came to a, a very abrupt halt, and um, it it would have been good, I think, to um, perhaps be a bit more considered in, in, in how that report was put forward and not to discredit the entire Fibers report um, in the way that that particular uh, article set out to do. Um, I don't think that, that the country as a whole benefited from the way in which uh, that, that was put together. But as somebody very wise said to me once, you know, never pick a fight with uh, people who buy ink by the barrel. So uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pick a fight with them. No, I mean it. It, it seems strange to throw out the contents of the entire of uh, George Fivers's work. Um, I, I did. I found that a bit odd myself. But um, and and I and I suppose we've discussed before how the the report has been useful to certainly to SARS and other people since. So uh, it would seem that well, you know, SIU. Um, Andy Mutibi has said that it's useful. Um, Lieutenant General the Bay of the Hawks has said it's useful. Uh, SARS have found it useful. Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 received now um, grudging recognition uh, after the fact. But of course, the report um, was never quite completed. It it never got to um, to finality. So we never could quite identify who those uh, wing leaders were uh, conclusively. And that's a pity because I think that's, that's where the country would have benefited. Well, that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight podcast. Remember that you can find our latest podcasts, reviews and subscribe for free at iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcasts. The Business Day Spotlight podcast is a Times Live production and our producer is Demi Buzo. I've been your host, Alex Parker. Until next time, goodbye.